Welcome, CoreCast listeners. I am your host, Richard Rabkin, the Managing Director, and I have the famous Rabbi Tzvi Haver, Director of Community Kosher. How are you, Rabbi Haver? I'm doing fantastic today, Richard. It's great to be back. It's been a while. Yes. Okay, today we have an exciting topic. We're calling it the Top 10 Kosher Secrets According to the COR. So what do we mean by that? These are things that maybe you don't know. Um, Maybe you're not quite aware that uh, the CWAR might take a different approach than either you thought or perhaps a different approach to another certifier. Believe it or not, I have heard the sentiment before that CWAR is very strict. And, you know, we are strict in some things, and I think probably it's a good idea to be strict when it comes to kosher uh, in a lot of ways. Rabbi Haber, you uh, tell me what you think about that. But, But at the same time, we also all have our areas of difference. We, there's a lot of commonality, I think, between the kosher certifiers, but each kosher certifier, too, has different approaches to things. So we wanted to highlight some areas where perhaps there might be a little bit of a different approach that you might be, uh, you may may not be aware of. What do you think about that? Yeah, um, definitely responsibility of a kosher certification agency is to be authentic and true to halacha. Um, and and be mavakish the MS, search for the truth, and that's what it's that's what it's all about. Of course, there's always going to be different perspectives. Um, in many areas of halacha, it is that way. Some are more strict, some are more lenient. Um, and the great thing about the COR is that so we're a community organization run by our very own community rabbanim, um, who search in each question for the truth. And uh, the truth sometimes is going to be stricter, and sometimes going to be more lenient. And so we're here today to to share some of the uh, some of the less well-known uh, policies and halachos that COR presents to its community. Okay, fantastic. So let's get started. These are the top ten. So we are going to try to keep it moving and try to keep it informative. So number one here on our list is that soap does not require a hexer, does not require kosher certification. That's a policy here at the CR. We get a lot of questions. People see the dish soap, the, you know, the either the kosher certification was removed. Can they use it? Can they not use it? So that is the CR's position. What is the reason for that? So the the reason is is that uh, soap is always pogum, which means it's, it's always going to have a very sour and bad taste. And whether or not the soap contains um, animal fat or non-kosher ingredients is irrelevant to our position on the matter. Our position is that even if it does contain a non-kosher ingredient, soap will, by virtue of it being soap, will always be sour. In fact, Richard, I myself many years ago uh, tested this concept out. I took a soap that did have a hexer, it had an OU at the time. It was actually a food grade dish soap, not a, a dishwasher soap. So it was something that you put on your uh, on your dishes in the sink and something that technically could stay on the on the dish if you didn't wash it out properly. So they were cognizant of, of, of making that product uh, food safe so that if somebody accidentally ingested it, it wouldn't be harmful and and I wanted to see maybe if it's food safe, it's also taste, um, maybe it had a positive taste. Maybe it wasn't uh, so distasteful as, as, as we, what we had thought or what we're describing. Um, and I actually uh, mixed some soap on, on some food item that I, was, uh, that I had in my kitchen, and I went to taste it. And I, I mixed it with using a halachic process, a hot process, 
and I rinsed it off, and I wanted to see if the if the if the, what the soap tastes like um, when it combined with the food item. And actually, it was it was quite as you can expect, it was quite sour and and and, uh, and foul tasting. So that just reconfirmed our uh, our, our understanding that that dish soap, uh, dishwasher soap, um, is is pogum and uh, it's it's uh, bad tasting. And the Torah, of course, um, even though there there may be an ingredient in there that uh, that this, that is not kosher, but it only prohibits that ingredient when that ingredient tastes as it's meant to, um, in a positive way. But if you add something that completely um, wipes away any positive uh, taste, and, and now it's completely sour and 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 horrible tasting, then uh, it's at it, that point it's permitted, and therefore we say that uh, that soap is permitted regardless of whether or not it has a hexer. So kosher consumers, you heard it here first. Rabbi Haber is so dedicated for you that he is eating soap. That wow. That's mysterious nephish for you. Yeah, well, listen, Richard, we, we, we always want to, you know, it's easy to say soap is sour tasting or bitter tasting or horrible just because it, it, it's logical that that's the way it is, but I didn't feel comfortable with that. We wanted to go all the way. Beautiful. Okay. Um, I'm sure there are lots of kids across the world who were threatened of having their mouths washed out with soap, now they heard it from Rabbi Haber that they should stay away and they should be well-behaved. That's right. Okay, let's go to number two, which is talking about salmon. And obviously fish is quite kosher-sensitive, and usually the policy is that you can only buy fish that has the skin on it um, because you can verify the scales. But apparently COR has a policy which is, I guess, somewhat more lenient than that. Explain to us what that is. Okay, so I definitely have to be very clear and very specific in order to answer this question so there are no misunderstandings. There are two aspects of fish that one would have to verify if buying a previously filleted product from a store without kosher certification or supervision. The first aspect is whether it is a min tahar, whether the actual species of the fish is kosher or is it not. <clears throat> and the second aspect is whether or not uh, it may, the its kosher status may have been compromised because it was processed um, with other non-kosher fish. So you always have to have those two things in mind. The first aspect of kashras, of course, is is the fish that I'm buying kosher? There's only one way to tell if the fish in question is kosher, and that is to to actually observe that the fish has scales, and in fact, kosher scales, scales that are defined by halacha as kosher, which means that you can actually pull the scale out of the fish without ripping the flesh. So if you see uh, a piece of fish that has those scales, then you know that it's kosher. You, you may not uh, necessarily know what type of fish it is, um, and sometimes you, you, you see in the store they, they'll, they'll mislabel, uh, since perhaps accidentally, uh, the, the actual species of the fish, but that doesn't really have an impact on kosher standard. It's does it have a scale which you can remove without ripping the flesh. That's a kosher scale. That identifies clearly as the, as, as the, as the kosher species. Now, there is an exception 
to that rule, which there are certifiers that have different perspectives. This is the COR's lenient perspective on the matter. There is a particular fish called a salmon that has a unique color, and that color is the orange color. So if you see that the salmon is orange, even if it's completely filleted and there is no skin, you do not have to uh, verify that it has kosher scales. Well, there are no scales because it's completely filleted. So you can still identify it as a kosher species because of its unique orange color. So the COR holds that salmon can be identified as kosher by its color. Okay? Now that's the identification of the fish. You always have to remember that there's a second aspect to this, and that is, was the status of kashras compromised because maybe whoever filleted, whoever cut it, whoever sliced it, uh, was in a non-kosher environment. Um, and that's very possible when it comes to fresh salmon or fresh fish. If it's cut or filleted, then you then, then it may have been done on, on a non-kosher surface. So when it comes to fresh fish, you always have to make sure that the, uh, the, the product that you're buying is either kosher certified uh, even if it's filleted, or you can you can perform a process which in the poskim it's called in halacha it's called shiv shiv gadol, which uh, essentially what you do is you take the surface that that was was processed on or you take the, the the surface of the fish and you scrape the surface with the back of the uh, with the back of a knife along the the surface that was cut with under a, a strong stream of water. Okay, that's how you do shivshivgadol. Um, alternatively, if you're buying a frozen product, then we will assume generally that frozen fish will be processed in a plant that is specifically processing that particular species, which in this case is kosher, so we do not require the shivshivgadol. So technically you can go to the store, you can buy even a white fish if you see scales um, on the surface of the white fish, or you can buy an orange fish if it's uh, and, and by virtue of its color, consider it salmon. If it's frozen, then um, it's okay as is, and if it's fresh, you have to perform the shift of gutto. Great. So I'm sure if people don't know that already, they could go to Costco or um, Loblos or Sobeys or what have you and, and buy um, filleted salmon there if it's fresh, as long as they do the shift of gutto when they get home. Okay. That's correct. And another option that people have um, is that they have seen this done before. They can actually bring their own implements. Uh, they can bring a cutting board. They can bring a knife and ask the, the person there to, to cut it for them. That's an option that people have. Um, or they can verify that the surface that's being used, if it's being cut in front of them, is, uh, is, is clean and free right. of all uh, other cross-contamination. Great. Okay, let's go to number three. What about muffins at Starbucks? The muffins, at least in Canada, right? The muffins um, are out of their original sealed packaging, but can a kosher consumer eat them? So it's very interesting. I remember uh, way back uh, several years ago, uh, we, we visited one of the more well-known chain um, franchise stores uh, coffee shops here in Canada, one of the very popular ones, and they told us something very interesting, which was that they have corporate policy that even though they don't have any kosher stores, and clearly Trafe not kosher, 
But they have policy that when they introduce new products, if it's possible to get the new product as kosher certified, they do get that product co- as, as a kosher certified product. And it was very interesting to hear the reason. If you're not kosher, why are you, why are you introducing kosher products? So they said, well, you never know. Perhaps one day we will open a kosher franchise. We want to be armed. We want to be. We want to have it available. And there are other people that specifically do want to come in and buy kosher, um, whether they're Jewish or not Jewish. Uh, we want to have kosher. It's a higher standard. It's a higher level. However, uh, that was in their mind and how they described it. So you do have that where we find the the coffee shops, and you mentioned specifically Starbucks where they're, they're intentionally, specifically bringing in kosher product, okay? And, of, of course, these stores are not kosher, and they process non-kosher, uh, and it's all over the place. But there are products, like the Starbucks muffins, for example, at least here in Toronto, that are kosher out of the box, and they're not processed at all. They just come right out of the box and go right into the, uh, to, to the stand where they're selling that product. Um, and... And, and technically, that product is kosher. So how do you know as a consumer? You walk into the store, all you see is the product in the display case. What are you looking for? So if a person wants, he can go in, and he, what he has to do is he has to ask, where, can you show me the box? Can you show me the, the, uh, the, where, the packaging? Where did this product come from? And if he's reasonably satisfied that, that there was no... Uh, there was no problem afterwards, so there was no processing and there's no cross-contamination. All they do, they can show you that they took it right out of the box and they put it right into the stand. Then they haven't, they haven't done anything to compromise the status of the, of the, of the muffin that, that came out of the kosher box. And actually, the, the Starbucks here in the, in the kosher community, they, they keep the boxes at hand so that they should always have that underneath the counter or in the back so that they should be able to keep uh, to show the kosher consumer. Of course, it's kosher dairy, and, uh, and that dairy is a not Yisrael product. Um, and if somebody wants it, they should go into Starbucks. And my advice to you is to, is to ask for the packaging. Um, can I see the box? It has a COR. Um, that's great. Now, you have to be careful because we, we cannot guarantee that Starbucks will forever uh, be, co- be carrying the kosher muffin, and we don't know what they do outside of Toronto or, or in the States for all our international users, uh, listeners, and, and um, we, we just don't know. So the idea here is, is ask, ask, ask to verify it, ask for the verification. At least here in Toronto, they're very used to bringing that out for you, and, uh, and, and, then, and then if you wish, you can... Uh, you, you can have that kosher muffin. Right. Yeah, that's great. So I'm pretty sure it's across Canada, actually. So you, But you basically at Starbucks, you need to check. Ask to see that muffin case, and you'll see the COR on it, so you can have that muffin. But just take note, this is only with respect to Starbucks. It doesn't mean Tim Hortons or Second Cup or whatever else, because a lot of those places do get in things that are partially baked, but then they heat them up in the ovens, and those ovens are also used together with non-kosher. So we're specifically talking about Starbucks here, but that's great that we can go into a, a Starbucks and have a muffin. That's right. And, and you know, people have told me that um, they're not comfortable buying a muffin, even though they know in their mind that it's kosher. They've told me that they're not comfortable buying it once it's hit the display case. Um, so for them, I, I just say to them, hey, you know, if, if you are comfortable buying the product, you just don't know exactly what they do with it um, after it comes out of the box, buy it out of the box. 
you know, you can you can go into the into the store and they're, they'll gladly sell you if they have uh, in the back a muffin that's still in the box or it's uh, still in the seal box. If that's what you want, you can go and do that as well. That's a good good advice. You can buy the box and that'll be eight thousand calories. <laughs> but you know, you got to space that out. So okay, let's go to number four now. What about the coffee at Starbucks? I know there's some divergent opinions uh, amongst some of the kosher agencies. Some say don't get anything at all at a coffee shop. Uh, some suggest that there are some drinks. What 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 does Seor recommend here? So, Richard, uh, our, our policy is, ha, has been uh, very consistent on this issue, and it's been like this well before Starbucks became um, something that's talked about. In fact, our, our our policy comes directly from the Shulchan Aruch, and and that is that you can buy an unflavored coffee anywhere. Okay, so you can buy an unflavored coffee, even if it's decaf, uh, for that matter, unflavored tea, even if it's uh, decaf, you can buy that um, anywhere you go, even in a non-kosher restaurant and, and even in Starbucks. So that's been our advice to people um, in the past and still remains our advice to people today, even though there have been some kosher organizations and Rabbanim who, who feel that the fact that Starbucks and others uh, produce non-kosher on site and uh, there might be some type of cross-contamination. We've looked into it ourselves and we're still very comfortable with our position that you can buy um, unflavored coffee from Starbucks or anywhere else for that matter. Um, when it comes to other sorts of, of uh, specialty products at Starbucks, so we don't feel comfortable recommending anything that can't be bought or purchased across the board. If it's like this in one store, but not like this in another store, um, again, it's this is a processed product that we're talking about. It's not out of the box like the muffin that we just talked about. It's a processed product, and you have to know that that uh, that product that 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 particular product that that particular specialty drink would be kosher if you bought it anywhere. And we don't we don't feel comfortable recommending uh, processed drinks to buy. And in non-kosher restaurants or, or coffee shops, unless they can be purchased across the board anywhere, and that's true for for regular coffee. Okay, great. Um, so, in the number five of our top ten kosher secrets, according to the COR, is the DE or dairy equipment. You know, a lot of kosher agencies either designate something as parv or something as dairy, and that's it. But there is this intermediate status, which is more flexible, the DE, and uh, COR is one of the holdouts here. We do feel that it's important to let consumers know that a product is dairy equipment or not. So, Rabbi Haber, what does this mean, dairy equipment? Okay, so it's it's a fantastic uh, uh, question and topic. I love discussing this because uh, this is, in fact not a COR secret, just the contrary. Those who uh, would, would assign a dairy designation um, on a DE product are keeping its, its true status a secret. The COR is, is being up, open and up front. And this is what dairy equipment means. Dairy equipment is where, you're, where you have a PARV product. So the, par, the, the product is completely PARV, just that it's being processed on equipment that was previously used for a dairy product. We don't know when it was previously used for a dairy product, but it was previously used for a dairy product, um, and that there was no koshering 
in between the dairy product and the parv product. That's what dairy equipment means. Now, why is it important if it's made on milchik equipment or milchik kalim, then it's milchiks, right? Well, not exactly. Uh, for example, the halacha states that even though you are not allowed to eat uh, milchiks within a certain amount of time after fleshiks, after you ate meat, you have to wait, most people wait six hours, but there's different customs, some wait three, some wait one, even in, in different places in Europe. But you only have to have that waiting period of time if you've eaten meat, and now you want to eat dairy. But if you want to eat dairy equipment, even though you can't eat that together with the meat, but you can eat it immediately thereafter. So for example, if you had a a meat meal, Shabbos meal, something like that, and then you wanted to bring uh, dairy equipment ice cream. Remember, the dairy equipment means that it's parv. It just was manufactured on dairy equipment for dessert. So after you finish with the meat, the halacha says you're allowed to do that. And therefore, it's beneficial for the consumer to know what prod- what is this. Is it really dairy or is dairy equipment? Chocolate chips is a very popular example of uh, of a product that might be dairy equipment, but certifications will label it dairy. Um, of course, some of them are dairy uh, when they contain milk chocolate, but some of them are parv, and the organizations feel that they need to label it dairy. But in some cases, it is in fact dairy equipment. So you've got to call the organization, find out, is it dairy equipment, is it just dairy? Can I bake it into a, a, a baked good and then have it for dessert on, after a fleshic meal? These are some of the questions that you have when dealing with other cashless organizations. But when you're dealing with COR, you will always have the DE designation. The COR will not put a D on a product if it's not if there's no dairy inside, unless um, it's a COR. It's it's really certified by another cashless organization, and maybe a COR company was just repacking it. So if that's the case. We, we, we won't do better than the previous cashless organization. If they said it's dairy, we'll, we'll just by default have to say it's dairy. But if w- the manufacturing process is under our supervision, we will label it truthfully and call it dairy equipment. I do want to add one point, which is the point for the Chalv Yisrael and the non-Chalv Yisrael uh, categories. And that is that if it's dairy equipment, you have to realize that the previous dairy product is uh, a CORD product which, by assumption, is always considered to be not Chalav Yisrael. So the equipment was used to manufacture dairy, which was not Chalav Yisrael, and now it's manufacturing uh, parv on clean equipment, just that it had previously been used for dairy, not Chalav Yisrael. This is a great one. I actually had this just a few weeks ago on Shabbos. We uh, had our meal. We finished the meal. And then the kids, I guess they didn't like what was being offered for dessert. They brought out a bunch of popsicles. And the popsicles were C-U-R-D-E. So we, I had to explain to them what DE was, and everybody had a good time that they had, they were able to have their DE popsicles. So thanks to the COR for making sure that we're being uh, consistent with that dairy equipment policy. Yeah, and we like to make sure that we are fully transparent and, and we inform the consumer as much information as possible so they can benefit from it. Okay, let's go to to kosher secret number six, according to the COR. You see oftentimes a parv product, but then it says may contain dairy on it. 
So you assume I see COR, parv, but then it says may contain dairy. So should I be concerned? Well, you know, that's something where we that we wish the companies would would keep that a secret, but they, they can't because uh, they have allergen concerns. Basically, what may contain dairy means is that the company is producing dairy products as well. Okay, that's all it means. So it'd be like if I if I gave an example of, of our own kitchens, it'd be like you had meat on one side of the kitchen, you had dairy on the other side of the kitchen. You, if you'd want to pack that meat, you'd have to write on the package may contain dairy, which would be awkward. But obviously, halachically, it doesn't affect your meat status because the dairy is not... Uh, it doesn't halachically affect the the meat if it's on the other side of the kitchen. But the manufacturers do have to be careful, and sometimes allergies don't work the same way that halacha works. Uh, something could be airborne, it could be very minute amount, one in a million, and uh, and therefore they don't want any sort of lawsuit, and they don't want any any to take any risks. So they are forthcoming, and they say may contain dairy. But if it has a cor parv or it doesn't have parv, it just doesn't say dairy, then it's just, it, it is a parv product. You do not have to worry about it. Okay, so it's basically a legal disclaimer. Yes. Okay, so no need to be concerned about the may contain dairy. Okay, kosher secret number seven. What is a group one ingredient? Because we get a lot of calls about certain things. Do they require hexer or not? And so this is something that perhaps is not widely known, but... Not every single product requires a hexer, and there are a lot of things that don't. So what are these products, uh, and what is this group one ingredient status? So I was recently uh, presenting at, uh, at one of the local high schools here in Toronto, and I, I loosely used the terminology group one. And they were all looking, all the students were like, what's that? What is group one? Like I said it as if everybody should understand me. But it, it, it is one of those uh, secret codes that COR uses, along with uh, all the other cashless organizations. A group one is the industry's way of referring to a product that is kosher by default and does not require kosher certification on it. And you can buy it even without a kosher certification. The most common group one is water. Water, yes. Water does not require kosher certification. You can drink water at the tap if you want. You could drink water out of the bottle, even if it doesn't have kosher certification. So why do water companies get kosher certified? Well, maybe it's marketing. Maybe they, they just want it for their brand. Maybe all of their products have, and they're going to add it onto water as well. But water is a good example of a group one. But there are many, many other group ones that you may or may not know about. And at COR, we want to bring that to your attention so that uh, consumers know, even if they're not in areas that are populated by kosher products, or even if, they, if the non-certified version of the product is much cheaper than the kosher certified version, that they have the option of buying Group 1 products, which are, I'll just give you a few examples. Baking powder is a Group 1. Baking soda Barley, if it's raw, or any other grain that's raw, is a group one. Cocoa powder, plain cocoa powder, is a group one. Coffee beans, so whole coffee beans, even instant coffee, if it's unflavored, as long as regular decaf, is 
a group one as well, as long as it's unflavored. Dishwashing liquid, tablets and soap we talked about. Dry beans and lentils are group one. Flour, it's all-purpose flour, whole wheat flour is a group one. Canned fruit is a group one. As long as it's in its own juice and does not have any um, added flavoring or any other additives. Sugar, if it does add, if they do add sugar in, it is okay. Uh, sugar as a product is a group one. Rice, as we said, a, a raw grain. But with rice, even if it's parboiled, it's a group one. Popcorn kernels, as long as they're not oiled and they're raw, are a group one. Salt is a group one. And there are many spices that are also a group one. If you have any questions, feel free to email us at questions at cor.ca and we'll answer any group one inquiry that you may have. Great. Okay. Wow. Um, let's go to number eight here, which is chalav stum. When um, maybe Rabbi Haber, you can explain to us what that means. But you know, not all kosher agencies will certify something which is considered chalav stum, and even restaurants. Uh, they would demand that it be a Chal of Yisrael. So what's the COR policy on that, and what does it mean? So Chal of Stam is the colloquial way of referring to um, milk that was produced in an unsupervised, let me let me take that out, not an unsupervised environment, but in an environment that doesn't have a Mashkiach Tamidi there standing watching the milk production. And that um, type of milk, even though in Shulchan Aruch that's, that, that type of milk is considered not kosher, um, but there's a famous uh, series of tshuvas that Ramosha Feinstein wrote and Paskind that in, in our countries where we're familiar with the, with the regulations and the laws and there's, there's very onerous uh, requirements of the industry, uh, we have the right to consider even milk that that doesn't have a mashkiach, a supervisor always standing and watching the production, we can assume that to be kosher because of the regulations. So we can assume it's cow's milk because um, because the, regu- the regulations are rigorous in North America and perhaps other countries where the rabbanim feel that that the status should be the same way. So that's what chal of stam means. So cor of course. Uh, the CORD designation, um, unless it under, otherwise indicates a Chalav Yisrael status, should always be considered Chalav Stam, which is the level of kosher which um, it, which is not Chalav Yisrael. And that relies on the opinion of Moshe Feinstein and other Rabbanim who have followed um, and, and accepted that as kosher. So we have COR certified milk, that's Chalav Stam, that's CORD milk, and we have, um, of course, other products, ice cream products, chocolate products that are considered CORD. When you come to the retail level or the food service level, so the the catering that COR provides is all Chalav Yisrael catering. The only um, exceptions to that would be is if you're you're getting food in an institution, so hospitals or community buildings. Might have uh, might have catering that is not chalav yisrael. You should always be on the lookout if you do keep chalav yisrael uh, that that you'd have not chalav yisrael offerings in community or institutional biz- uh, buildings. Um, when it comes to restaurants, we do allow restaurants to serve not chalav yisrael if they so choose that designation. So that designation has to be clear 
on the C.O.R. certificate that they have chosen not Chal of Yisrael. And then it's, we consider the place is not Chal of Yisrael. So some, so we have a coffee shop, second cup kosher in the, in the, uh, in the Sobeys Plaza that's chosen the not Chal of Yisrael designation. So all products should be, should be assumed to be not Chal of Yisrael. And that allows them to serve all those uh, second cup products which have the non Chal of Yisrael designation allows them to offer more of a variety. Um, you, do, you, you can't assume that anything is Chal of Yisrael unless there was a particular sign on a machine or on a type of milk or whatever that, that, that was designated specifically as Chal of Yisrael. Um, other restaurants do have the option. seems to be that uh, by and large, 90, 95 to 98% of the time, people want the Chal of Yisrael designation so that they can have an offering which appeals to the entire community, even people who do keep Chal of Yisrael, and that seems to be the common practice, but if a restaurant technically wanted to open up, and they wanted that non-Chal of Yisrael designation, either because they were a franchise, or for whatever other reason, maybe they had more variety, more of a selection, the COR would embrace that and allow that. Great, okay. Last two here, and I think these are the uh, the biggest ones of them all, perhaps, well, I guess if you're a scotch or whiskey drinker, so number nine, COR policy allows scotch and sherry casks. Rabbi Haver, explain. Okay, so the sherry cask uh, issue is, is, is one of those controversial issues amongst the halakhic authorities and, and the kashas organizations that, that follow the, their advice. Um, and, and, and you see, you know, Richard, you and I both frequent uh, shuls in the neighborhood, and we see very often... Um, scotches uh, that are well known to be aged in sherry casks, um, as well as some of those that are, are, are secretly aged in sherry casks and where you, you don't see that uh, right on the label or you don't obviously know that it's not even marketed that way, but you and I and being in the industry, we know that they are aged in sherry casks. So the question is, why do we see that in shuls? Why is it allowed? Sherry is wine. Wine had previously been aged in, in those casks. How, how could it possibly be? You know, we, we know at, at home you can't have non-kosher kalim, non-kosher equipment and just use that for even even if the whiskey itself, the scotch, of course, is, is uh, by definition, scotch is kosher. It's made out of uh, grain alcohol and they're only allowed specific ingredients which are 100% kosher and we're not worried about them. But what about the cask? What about that barrel that was previously been stored and used for sherry or wine? Why is this allowed? And the answer is that our postkim feel very strongly, and it seems to be the common custom in Toronto, in many, many of the shuls, if not all of them, that people are allowed to bring uh, scotch, even if it was aged in a sherry cask, because the Shulchan Aruch says quite explicitly that the wine that was inside the barrel would not add a positive, enhancing taste to the scotch. To the, to the whiskey. In fact, the combination of tastes does have a detrimental effect on the wine, believe it or not. So even though companies advertise it and they say, wow, this is, this is something that was aged in sherry cask and that's supposed to be a myla, that's supposed to be an advantage, but the Shulchan Aruch says that the combination of taste actually is, is detrimental to the wine. So what that means to say is I, I think we have to think about it at, at, a, at a halakhic level. You know, wine is is different than other non-kosher 
non-kosher uh, products. Why? How so? Well, wine is actually made from kosher ingredients, but it, be- it becomes non-kosher during processing when it's um, when when the the processing is facilitated by people who are not Jewish, and that creates non-kosher wine because ritual wine, kosher wine, is wine that was processed by Jewish people, at least until the point of Bishel, until it's cooked. That's why Mavushal wine can then be handled by uh, by anyone, not even people who aren't Jewish. Uh, but until that point, non-Mavushal wine has to be handled only by Jewish people. So it's different. It's something that is that is kosher ingredients, but becomes not kosher during the processing. And the reason for for that is because wine is 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 a drink that sometimes that that for sure historically was associated with libation and uh, avodah zara or idolatry. Also, it's it's a type of a drink that um, that 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 is used to uh, to enhance relationships. And the rabbis didn't want us to drink wine that was handled by by non-Jews. That said. Once the wine is just a flavor in a whiskey, it's a flavor in the whiskey, it doesn't have the status of wine anymore. It's not that same important drink that the rabbis issued a decree on. Of course, we know that there was no decree issued on drinking whiskey, whiskey that was handled by a non-Jew, so we can have that. It was just specifically wine, and therefore wine that had previously been in the barrel and now was used uh, that barrel was used to to combine the, its taste with the whiskey taste. Does not enhance the taste of the whiskey. It's no longer considered wine, and therefore we are allowed to drink it. And that is the psak of the Shulchan Aruch, and that is the psak of our Rabbanim in Toronto. Okay, interesting. And should point out that this is something that's not totally, uh, there's not unanimity in the kosher world about this. There are a lot of uh, kosher agencies that have a much stricter policy than the CUR. So just noting that our policy here is different. And the last one, number 10 kosher secret according to the CUR, which is related to the one that we just talked about, is whiskey uh, that Canadian whiskeys, I guess, specifically, but that we do allow, even though they may contain some trace amounts of non-kosher wine. Rabbi Haver, enlighten us. So here, the 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 ideas are the same as the last question, but the the halachas are are, are different um, in in terms of how they apply, um, because we're not talking about wine that was absorbed into a barrel that automatically becomes. Um, you know, the, it, it, its combination with whiskey is detrimental. We're not talking about that. It was what we found. And this was truly a secret: is that there are Canadian whiskeys that do contain minute amounts of actual wine in the mix. And we wrote about it extensively in our recent Halachic Corner, which I uh, definitely recommend for all of our listeners uh, to read. It's available online at cor.ca. But the the, the short story is that wine added into a product will make the product not kosher unless it is first mixed with six parts water. If it's mixed with six parts water, 
more than six parts water, then it is diluted to the point that halacha does not consider that wine anymore. It's just, it's flavored water, but it's not wine anymore. And therefore, it doesn't have the same problems as wine does. Similar to what we said before, that the, that the rabbis said that you can't have wine because of, because of its status, its social status, and its, uh, its status as, as a ritual, uh, as something that was used for libation and, and, and idolatry. Therefore, it has to be considered wine. But if it's not wine because it's diluted to the extent in water that it's bottle or nullified, one in six parts, then it loses its non-kosher status. And actually, that's what happens in, in the Canadian whiskey, that it's actually mixed with water before, um, before it's added into the, the whiskey. And even after it's added into the whiskey, the whiskey itself is diluted with water, and therefore the wine in that whiskey is bottle bishisha, and that is permitted according to all the postkin. So, here too, there are some agencies that uh, want to be, that, that have come out in, in a strict way because um, there's wine in your drink. How can you drink, how, how can you have wine? And in fact, Ramosha Feinstein wrote a tshuva about what he called blended whiskeys many years ago, which, um, which really means whiskeys that are blended with wine. He actually permitted it um, on a different basis. He did not assume it was mixed with water. Today, we've discovered that it is mixed with water, and therefore it's permitted, and we allow it. Okay, fascinating. So there you have it. Those are the top 10 secrets, kosher secrets, according to the COR, and uh, we hope that you found them interesting. If you have any questions, you can always get us at questions at COR.ca, or if you have any topics for the next CORECast, please let us know. But thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rabbi Haber, for being my guest, and we'll see you next time on another edition of the CORECast. You're very welcome. It's always my pleasure.